1: Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 34. Today we are joined by Sam Soholt, photographer, public land bus driver, and all-around good guy. So tune in. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of The Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host Clint Campbell. Today we're going to have a little bit of a short intro. Uh, John and I both are relatively freshly back from our Montana trips and trying to get some uh get some work done in preparation for the impending white tail season that we both have coming up here. Opening here in Pennsylvania on Saturday, so I will definitely be in the timber. Uh, came back from uh, Montana, had a little bit of a honey-do list to do. Took care of that this weekend, so didn't get out uh, for the... Um, as the season has opened uh, in the eastern part of the state just a few weeks earlier than the the remainder of Pennsylvania. So the statewide opener is Saturday, so my honey-do list is done. I am free Saturday, and there is a cold front coming through. So hoping that uh, I'm able to get into the stand and track down Lucky and get an early season strike in. Um, Seems like the weather conditions might be right or at least favorable for an early season set. So we'll hope that that happens. But in the meantime, we have a conversation with Sam Soholt today. Uh, some of you may know him I'm sure a lot of you have seen his work uh, and we'll dive into a little bit of that but Sam is uh, an amazing photographer videographer um, has done a bunch of stuff for a bunch of different big brands Uh, you probably know some of his handy work if you've ever followed or watched the uh, Into the High Country with Jason Matzinger Um, he's actually currently out with Jason right now filming for Into the High Country I believe on Jason's Ram Hunt Jason is one of those guys who's lucky enough to not only draw a sheep tag uh, once in his lifetime for Montana but this is his second tag And Sam is filming this this adventure. Uh, Sam was kind enough to take some time out uh, to jump on a call and talk about the initiative he's working on um, with his public land bus. You know, public lands are something that are near and dear to his heart, uh, particularly from the vantage point from where he grew up and has decided to kind of take it upon himself and uh, do something about it to try to raise awareness of what's going on with public lands and public lands uh, potential transfers. And why the public lands are so important—not just to hunters, but why they should be important to everybody. Uh, it's definitely a worthy cause. Um, he's got the support of some different companies now that are that are behind him. You can follow along on his journey on Instagram, his Facebook page, and I believe he's going to have some stuff in one of the larger outdoor publications in the not-so-distant future, if it's not already happened. Um, so without further ado, I think, you know, we'll just kind of jump into the conversation with Sam. I will say that, you know, please bear with us with the, uh, with some of Sam's audio as he was in some remote areas and, um, uh, in, in Montana, if I'm not mistaken, uh, during this record. Uh, but I think his message is important and is, and is a good one. So we wanted to make sure that we put this out. So I want to apologize in advance for some of the, uh, the technical snafus that we had, uh, given some of the remote, the remote location that Sam was recording from, but I think you'll enjoy the content. I think it's very worthwhile to listen and, uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Before we dive into our conversation with Sam, I want to take a quick pause to talk about our partners at Whitetail Institute of North America. As all of you know by now, I've been using Whitetail Institute products for several years, and I continue to use the products because I see results in the quality of the deer that I'm seeing on our farm. Now that I'm three years in uh, to the food plot process, they've got forage and mineral to suit your needs, but don't just take my word for it head over to whitetailinstitute.com and check out their products and customer testimonials and see what people are saying about their products and the impact it's having on their hunting experiences. Go to whitetailinstitute.com. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host Clint Campbell, and today we are joined by uh, a buddy of John's actually. John actually turned me on to uh, this gentleman's photography and videography work. I uh, it's funny, I had seen some of his stuff unknowingly, and then once I realized, you know, that John was it was was pals with this guy, I kind of took a deeper dive. And uh, liked his photography before, and then absolutely kind of learned a little bit more about this gentleman, and fell in love with his 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 handiwork with the with the camera. So super stoked to have him on, Mister Sam Soholt. How are you doing tonight? Yeah,
2: hey, I'm good. Really appreciate you having me on, right. and I was pretty. Pretty major lead to my to what I'm up to, so I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> hey, man, I'm a I'm a you know former well you know I'm a musician, so I do I do appreciate the arts, man. And uh, you know, John definitely turned me on to the stuff that you were working on. I had been following you on Instagram, and I hadn't recognized that I had seen some of your handiwork in a couple of different places. I know that you've you know, you've done some work with Jason Matzinger on the uh, Into the high country stuff for as far as videography and uh, videography, if I'm not mistaken. And, and then I know that you've also shot yep. for some larger brands as well. So I'm sure a lot of folks out there have probably seen your work and may not may not know, but it is, uh, it's definitely top notch, but I know I keep kind of alluding to some of the work that you're doing, but if you wouldn't mind, before we kind of dive into some of the good stuff of what you've been up to, you know, I know that there's a, there's a bus involved these days that I definitely want to talk about, but if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> give, give, us, give us a little bit about background yeah, about sure. who you are, where you're from, you know, how you started hunting, how you got into photography, just the, uh, the elevator speech for Sam Soholt.
2: Yeah. So, um, actually I actually grew up in South Dakota. Um, so I'm a, you know, from so the Great plane and Um, yeah, I grew up in South Dakota and most of, most of people was chasing, uh, ducks and pheasants, focused really hard on the waterfowl stuff. and um, always kind of had an interest in, the, you know, all the camera stuff and filming, photography. Never really, never really dove into it that hard. Um, then went to, went to college up to uh, Dakota State in Fargo. Um, pretty much chose the college cause it was only a hundred miles from our lake place where we could, uh, get down there and chase ducks every weekend. And, and, uh, and then, uh, knowingly to my parents, go chase ducks during the week, uh, in North Dakota. <laughs> and, then, um, yeah, so when I, when I turned 21, um, uh, it was, so I guess I'll go back, My my parents made a deal with all three of us kids that if we didn't drink until we were 21, we could pick out a shotgun. Nice. And I uh, would buy us a shotgun. And when my brother turned 21, he got a shotgun. When I turned 21, I actually got a professional video camera. So, nice. um, yeah, and so it was kind of the, the very start of it. Um, and then I I got my nice. master's in business administration from NDSU. And then the fall that I was finishing that up, actually, um got an internship with U.S. Whitetail. So that was my, my first jump into the uh, into the professional selling world. And, uh, from there, it's been snowballing. You know, I've, I've moved to Colorado and did some work for uh, my brother's backcountry hunting store out there. Um, it's called Gannett Ridge Hunting Equipment, just all high-end backcountry gear. And then, um, I actually moved to Montana as a sales rep briefly, um, before uh, taking a job with, um, the weather channel filling color, Alaska. Nice. Um, it's just been, a, you know, one up to the next, I keep meeting people on on different, uh, you know, different some different events and different stuff and um, trying to network with people in the industry. And, uh, luckily, I've met people at the right time and they've hired me out to do uh, both photo and video work, like you we were talking about. So, you know, worked for everyone from Remington to the, to the, Yeti to the weather. It's, and you know, it's it, uh, it all kind of started in a you know LB, Iowa, in Southern Iowa. So kind of kind of fun to kind of fun to, you know be where I'm at today. Just you know, yeah, you know, sitting in a tree stand or, Yeah, it's
1: the uh, that's the that's the good life, man. It's a, and they've definitely made a, a wise choice of picking you do, to a. Uh to do their uh the camera work and if anyone out you know out there is listening who hasn't seen your instagram feed it's like i would highly recommend checking it out because you'll definitely see some great photos just a a portion or a sample of the of the work that you that you do i you mentioned duck hunting it's funny because duck hunting is one of those things that i've i've never done i'm supposed to go goose hunting this september for the first time but I I'm terrible at hunting anything with feathers. Anything that has it's on on four legs, I'm pretty good with. But anything with feathers, it's, terrible. Know if it's turkeys or what it is. It's, if it has feathers, it, it usually outsmarts me. You know. So duck hunting, I tip my hat to you.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, for some reason, I just have a feeling. I mean, I love you know hunting big game and all the west stuff. But uh, for some reason, there's deep down, I put me in chase water. <laughs> I do that so. It was pretty easy for me grow up in Dakota. There's plenty of plenty of ducks and beef to
1: choose. Right. So I want to ask yeah. you a tough question here. Is um, you know you mentioned hunting ducks, and I know just from you know the the bit that you know uh, John has shared with me, and then I started following you as well. You you hunt a variety of of, of species at this point, but. I want to kind of get a yep. sense of you know what type of hunts are your favorite to photograph, and which are your favorite to actually be the person behind the bow or behind the gun, or does it not matter to you at this point?
2: Well, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, but I, I definitely have favorites. Uh, question. I mean, last year on Mountaineers, I'll come, you know, film of that and having it all on the gate just so back. Um, you know, and then some. of them, You know, either.
1: Hey Sam, you still there?
2: Can uh,
1: you hear? Bre- you're breaking up pretty good. Losing the signal.
2: Oh uh, yeah, uh, we do have a stand blown in, so hopefully that's not the cause. Okay. Uh, hear me now?
1: Yeah, I can hear you a little better now.
2: Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, I'll try that again. Yeah. So, so
1: the hard hard question, a little technical difficulties, not a big deal. The hard question here is, is that, you know, knowing that you are behind the camera a fair amount during the season and you hunt a variety of species, you know, is there a favorite that you have that you like to hunt? Is there a favorite that you have whenever you're behind the camera or at this point, are you kind of impartial to what you have in your hand and what you're going after?
2: Uh, I mean, that is a tough question to answer. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing film or photography, it's, uh, I think I'm going to answer a little different than I actually started to, but <laughs> I wouldn't film photography, I don't think it matters as much at this point. I think it's a fun challenge to, regardless of the hunt, you know, turn it into, you know, pulling emotion out of each photo or, or putting the story together um, behind the camera. But uh, actually, um, for me personally, uh, like as a hunter, or like you, I talked about this on John's podcast, but I, after that whole, you know, fall in, in Southern Iowa chasing whitetail, it was, uh, it's hard for me not to, uh, you know, be just totally in love with whitetail hunting. And I know you like to hear that too, right. know,
0: yeah. yeah, being on
2: a whitetail hunt and yeah. cat, but, um, but yeah, the whitetail stuff is pretty special. And then, um, it's, uh, I've, for as far as big game, you know, the whitetail thing and then followed close to second by elk and mule deer. And then, uh, um, but on the bird side, it's, it's going to be Jason mallards in November in Dakota.
1: Right. So nice. The uh, yeah. I'm going to get my first, as you mentioned, you know, the way it's a whitetail podcast, and that's I live in you know what we'll call a whitetail world, if you will, and uh, I'm I'm doing my yep. first elk hunt here, um, doing a backpacking canvas tent two weeks, uh, living in a tent in uh, in Montana here in like two weeks I leave so. Um, nice. Yeah. You. Yeah. So all public land, which I'm excited about. Um, you know, got a buddy yep. who lives in, uh, in Montana. He works for, um, uh, the forestry service, if I'm not mistaken, he's a biologist. If I, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, um, and, uh, he has you know, a bunch of great spots he's been hunting over the course of the past several years and stuff like that. And so I finally got invited on the trip cause he, he takes my cousin with him and another mutual friend of ours. And I finally got the, uh, the ask of like, Hey, you know, you're really into hunting. Maybe you should come out and hunt elk with us. And like he couldn't, he didn't finish the sentence before I said, I'm in like, and that was just all yep, there was. I'll be there. Him. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, cool. When when do we leave? It's, it's okay. He's like, do you need to ask your wife? I was like, no, 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 no. We don't need to ask her. Just tell me when, when I need to leave. Um, so I'm pretty st- I'm pretty stoked for that. So, the other thing I wanted to ask you though is, you know, do you feel like because this is just one of those things where it, I just have an I have an interest in seeing what your answer is here. So, do you feel like yeah. when you're capturing a hunt through the camera lens, are you able to be more? think more clearly about the hunting scenario that you're in since you're just slightly detached from the person behind the bow or behind the gun. So it's like, are you able to kind of not get caught up in the moment and think about, you know, if, if, if the wind is shifting, you know what your next move needs to be, or if the shot just isn't coming together for the hunter, like what your next move needs to be to kind of strategically get yourself in place for the next encounter. Or do you get caught up in that moment? Just the same as you would, if you were the hunter.
2: Um, <laughs> well I think now like uh, be stay a little bit more detached uh, from the from the, you know the hype of the situation and really just focus on making sure that I'm getting the shot and not focusing on you know like what's happened with the animal or what the hunt you know like you know obviously I'm keeping all of this in mind but like uh, it's not me that's having to make sure the shot is right it's just me making sure that I have animal framed up or the hunter and the animal framed up and i can focus on just that instead of having you know my well, i still gets racing when it's all about to go you know all about to happen like any hunt um but i can i feel like i can keep a level of calmness to actually make sure i'm capturing what i need to be capturing when it needs to happen <laughs> right um yeah do you yeah, think so definitely definitely can... right do
1: you think that presence of mind actually helps you and translates into when you are the hunter Curious.
2: Oh, I would like to think so, um, but I get pretty excited. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it's when I'm up the back on stock. Uh, I uh, uh, I feel like I'm. times I feel like I black out, and then when, when it's all done, I'm like, "Okay, that worked," or you know, crap that didn't work like the way I wanted it to. Um, just go into full, you know. Yeah, go into full fury uh, mode. You know, black just you know, um, yeah. So I get, I would say I get way too excited when uh, when the opportunity is all going to happen in the right way.
1: Right. I think we're all kind of kind of guilty of that. Speaking of of, of excitement, John, yeah. I, I know you, uh, especially when you see those whitetails rolling in, I and mean, you 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 get pretty excited in the tree stand. If I'm not mistaken,
3: almost as excited as Sam does whenever um, he sees tim tams almost Uh, 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 and and it's kind of one of those deals (laughs) he likes them a lot Um, yeah you know and my, my take on a lot of that stuff is I think where Sam has so much talent is because he's been in those hunting situations before so you know he's able to react Um, and, and having that anticipation, like knowing what's about to happen next or, uh, what the hunter is about to do next. Um, you know, that's what I see. There's obviously, there's tons of talented photographers and videographers out there that, you know, if they're, if they've never been in that hunting situation, it seems like they're playing catch up and trying to they're filming the backside of a hunter's body instead of filming the front side and capturing that, you know, excitement or, or dejection, you know, it all depends on how, how it plays out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think for, I think for yeah. me, it's the, the the dejected version of it more often than more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but there's also raw emotion in that, you know, and those things, those stories need to be told, need to, need to be told as well. Um, one of the things that, I think is interesting. So I've I've told, I've explained this to John before where, you know, I'm probably just a notch above Ray Charles when it comes to photography or handling a camera in in general. Um, so my camera skills aren't, aren't, aren't great. Um, but I want to get a sense of like, you know, there's one thing to take great photos, right? Um, you know, and, and I always say that my wife has a pretty decent eye for a novice photographer. She likes to play around with photos and she's pretty just, good at it just for a person who does it at home. Right. Um, but what is the difference in your mind between taking great photos and then capturing experiences, whether it's through photography or videography, like a hunt, like how do you have to approach those things differently than just taking, you know, shooting a a wedding or whatever the case might be outside of like the, the, the notion that these are live animals, they have a mind of their own. They're not going to stand still for you beyond that. Just the approach, like how do you transition from taking great photos to capturing great experiences? A little bit of technical a technical difficulty here. This is what happens. You know, uh, Sam is out in the uh, in the mountains on on a hunt. If I'm not mistaken, that we'll, we can we can talk about as well with, with Jason Matzinger. Yep. Uh, if yep. I'm not mistaken, you're going after some some rams. So we're getting we're having some technical difficulties just in reception, but we'll bear with it. Um, I wanted to ask you as a, kind of I guess if a follow up to the the previous question was. You know, I had mentioned, you know, to John in the past that I'm, I'm a notch above Ray Charles in terms of photography skills and, and camera skills. Um, you know, so to me, to see people who take great photos or great videography, I'm just it's one of those things. It's like watching a professional athlete where you just you can't imagine how they capture some of this stuff. Right. Or for the athletes, you can't imagine how they jump as high as they do and run as fast as they do. So to me, it, I'm always curious what it's like or how, what the nuances are between taking great photos, right? So the person who has a photography gig that maybe they're doing a lot of wedding photography or whatever the case might be, and they might be a great photographer, right? But what's that difference between taking great photos and then being able to start to begin to capture amazing experiences like hunting and stuff like that beyond the animal aspect that you don't have control over. What's the, what's the approach? How is it different and how do you make that transition from photography to capturing these experiences?
2: Um, you know, I I think, uh, I think John, you know, said a little bit this just, you know, because I've, uh, you know, basically been in the field my entire life, growing up, um, hunting and fishing, and, you know, being in the outdoors and seeing, you know, how all of that stuff is supposed to go. Um, and interesting cameras, it's, uh, I mean, I think, I don't think it's, uh, I think there's a lot of stuff in photography that you can learn, you know, like the camera, in you know, the specifications of the camera and, you know, how to run ISO and shutter speed and all that kind of stuff and to, to pose a big picture. Um, but I think there's, uh, I, I feel like I'm fortunate to just have a good eye for photography and people, you know, like tell me that I have a good eye for photography and I never really thought about it before, but, uh, and I think that might be something that is, is harder to learn and, uh, you know, seeing, Seeing moments, you know, either whether it's a hunt or whether it's a wedding or whether it's you know on you know on a fishing trip or whatever and just seeing emotions that uh, moments that actually you know like um, will capture the emotion of that experience at that time. and I feel like I've been lucky to to be able to see those moments kind of like or like even before they're gonna happen, you know, like a certain person doing a certain thing on a hunt and um, capturing that moment in a way that's like allows the person looking at to feel like they're there or relate to that moment and be like, I know exactly what it's like. Uh, and, and so um, for me, like learning the camera like all the different stuff, like that's quite a while, you know, just a lot of YouTube videos and random um, you know, asking questions to other photographers and different stuff and then, you know, like I would see somebody else's photo and they get that shot, you know, and then a lot of times it'd be like three weeks later, you know, I'd just be, you know, doing something random and be thinking about photography stuff. And all of a sudden it would hit me like how to like capture that shot. And then I would go out and practice and, and try to, try to, like, you know, try to get better at doing that type of, type of imagery. So I know it's a really long winded way to your question, but I think some of it can be learned. And I think um, much anybody out there could become a good photographer, but I think there's a certain, there's a certain level of just needing to have that eye um, and being able to see the moments before they're going to happen um, to really take it to that next level.
1: Right. I mean, that totally makes sense. Cause I, I think just from, you know, the, you know, the only th- frame of reference I have from a creative perspective is, is music, you know? And so it's one of those things where I've always kind of been a, an advocate for people who are in the creative space that everyone has the ability to create, whether it's music, photography, or whatever the case might be. It's, it's, to me, it's always around you. You just have to be open enough to capture it and let it kind of use you as a conduit. Right. And I think that that's one level of creativeness. Right. I think then you, exactly like you said, is like, if it's photography, it's having that, innate eye right that you can't teach or you know we just recently had jimmy Herman on who's an amazing guitar player and fiddle player where it's like he's like a guy like that in music that just has that it factor you know what i mean where it's like it just seems it comes easy to him he gets it it just oozes out of him you know what i mean and that's just like a different level you know and not everyone is necessarily born with that it doesn't mean you can't work yourself into being an excellent creative mind in whatever field it field it is But you just may not have that same type of perspective that that other person has, and be able to get to that place that they can so easily. Yeah, you know. So I think it's a really interesting way that you that you explained it. I'm always, you know, I'm always interested too, because to me, when I see things, you know, because I started taking a camera into the woods and filming my whitetail hunts and stuff like that, and um, you know, as if whitetail hunting isn't hard enough, I decided to try to solo film all my hunts, which. Two years running, yeah. yet to get a deer and in, deer in frame that I've that I've drawn back on. So we're still a work in progress. But uh, I'm always interested to see, you know if your style or your approach is different based on the game, the game that you're chasing. So for example, you know, I know, you know, you are out on elk hunts and stuff like that. And right now you're out on a sheep hunt, you know? Uh, and so I'm curious, yep. do you, do you approach those two hunts differently? You know, I, I, I'm assuming the terrain of course is a little bit different and stuff like that in the time of year might be different, but do you have a different approach based on the animal that you're, that you're you know going after? Or do you usually kind of have a similar approach and let like the hunt kind of unfold and dictate what you need to, how you need to shift and
2: move? Well, I think, uh, you know, any hunt that's on the ground, I think is, is going to be a very similar um, style for me, like going into it, you know, whether it's elk or, you know, in stock mule deer uh, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, I'm going to do a lot, like it's from the stock standpoint, I'm going to do a lot more, like, long lens compressed stuff where, you know, if guys get in on something, um, you know, and then I'll, I'll do a, a stark difference in a lot of wide angle stuff. So it shows, you know, tells a lot of story in a single edge and kind of combine those two things. But, um, you know, if I'm in a tree and shoot photos, you know, of my dad sitting in a tree stand, it's pretty hard to get, you know, long lens photos and animals, but like, you know, to get that heat element, it's going to be a lot more wide angles and a lot more like macro dots and, and stuff with like all the little key details that happen like in a tree stand. So I definitely approach different hunts in different ways. Um, you know, whether you're on or not elevated or, you know, if you're sitting in blind or if you're spotting stock or if it's cold or, you know, you have to adjust a little bit. But, um, I feel like I have, you know, my own my photography style and I think, uh, regardless of the hunt, I put that twist on it. But yeah, I definitely, definitely adjust for, for each hunt.
1: So, like, like I mentioned, my, my skills are challenged with the with the camera. It, I, I'm kind of like a Kobe Bryant, maybe. It's, I'm a volume shooter, you know, or, or Russell Westbrook from the Oklahoma City the Thunder. Uh, you know, I take a lot of shots. and, and, and just, just,
2: keep hold, just keep holding the trigger. That's right. right. It's like
1: eventually something's going to work yeah. out,
2: you know what I mean? It's like, I do, yep. like look at that shot. Yep. Took
1: it, isn't that amazing? It was one of, like, 1,500, you know, but it, it's still a good shot. <laughs> um,
2: so for those Well, of, uh, I mean, I'll yeah i'll be honest that's definitely how i started out so i mean volume is important right okay so
1: at least at least i'm on the right path but for people like me or those who are starting out that you know that maybe want to get more serious or whatever about their photography um do you have any kind of tips to kind of help set them on the right path to taking good outdoor photos or hunting hunting experience photos is there something like there's like this rule of three things that if you do nothing else, you do these three things, you'll take decent photos. Is there anything like that that you have?
2: Oh, that's. Uh, um, most time people ask me that question, and then I just start talking for way too long. So let me try. I'll try <laughs> to condense it down. Yeah, uh, I mean, like we just said, I mean, one of the biggest things that people just trying to get into it can do is just shoot the time i mean but, like it'll be probably it'll probably be going through your hunting partners um but just shoot more photos like you know shoot a lot of photos and then shoot an additional 20 percent and mm-hmm. don't uh you know don't just stand there and shoot everything like standing upright at eye level you know Down, you know and like you know lay on your stomach lay on your yourself like you know get back behind the tree and put stuff between you and the uh, you you know, you and the subject, you know, just to tell a little bit more of the story, but um yeah, I mean, the volume in the first place is is a huge uh you know is the best way to go um, and then on top of that, like you said you know do you have a rule of three things, well, the rule of thirds is probably one of the most important things that it'll have a well composed and um if if people people listening if they don't know what the rule of thirds is you want to have like you basically break up your you know looking through the viewfinder you break up what you can see into thirds both going you know from the top to the bottom and from the right to the left and then if you're you know say say you're shooting a photo of somebody standing on a ridge you know looking out over a big area you know if if they're looking you know if you're looking at them and they're looking to the left you want to have them in lower right third of the photo because it shows what they're looking at um, and it just poses the shot in a way where it tells the story of what's happening rather than having the subject you know, centered in centered the photo and just having it be a very plain, flat, you know, not really happening. Um, so yeah, the rule of thirds is that going to goes for photography or you know, shooting people or you know, whatever it may be. Um, you want to have whatever you're shooting, you know, framed in, you know, whatever third it be just to, just to have the image have more, um, more information behind it rather than just a flat shot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, go ahead. No. And yeah. And then other than that, other than that, just, you know, like learn how to use, um, you know, F stop and your shutter speed and the ISO and, I could dive into that if you want to. Otherwise, it, you know, it's just uh, when I was first sort of getting going, I just watched probably 40 YouTube videos on like what happens, you know, using those three different things and, you know, how they interact with each other. Yeah. Um, I'm in that phase of yeah.
1: I, I, I twist the knobs on my camera and then I take pictures. I'm like, whoa, that looks terrible. I probably shouldn't. I should probably turn it the other way the next time. <laughs> like, that's my, that's right. my <laughs> trial and error approach. <laughs>
2: and that's a good way to do it yep that's a good way to do it so um it's on the practice you know anybody who's you know is a is a professional at something has you know put in in the hours like i mean even if you have an eye for something like in photography like it doesn't come you know it doesn't happen overnight so um yeah just shoot lots of photos you know just keep getting go out there and you know now that it's all you know digital memory cards and stuff we're not memory and if you don't like the photo at the end just delete it yeah, yeah. yeah. i hear that. not that's like you're wasting a bunch of extra money on film
1: right exactly it's like i have a i have a hard drive full of just probably garbage you know what i mean but it's like i just keep stashing it away yeah. stashing it away stashing it yep. away yeah um, uh, you yep. do have to do a purge at, at some point because it is getting getting slightly slightly ridiculous but um, I want yeah,
2: to, yeah, it's either purge or go buy more hard drives. Exactly. I
1: think my wife would vote for a uh, purge, the hard drive, because when she looks at what yeah. I'm shooting, she's like, I don't know why you shot this. She's like, this is awful. This, you just need to, date <laughs> so, um, but, John, I know, I know you obviously, you know, or uh, a, a guy who is, um, what I'll call photo sophisticated and has, has skill in has skill in this area. Anything you want to want to add to this?
3: Well, you know, since we have a fellow sophisticate on the podcast, uh, I don't feel so sophisticated. Um, you know, I, I've come a long way with photos, but, um, I still don't, you know, I'm still not on the level of Sam and guys like Jordan Gill and Drake and those guys. But, um, recently in Montana, I got to pick Sam's brain a whole lot and, um, I got some got some advice, got some tips, picked up some stuff from him and just watching what he was doing and and that was a huge learning curve like he mentioned those YouTube tutorials and I've done the same thing. I've sat and watched those things and watched those things, but uh you can learn so much more. I'm convinced and Sam you you can feel free to comment that I think you can learn so much more watching somebody if you have that luxury that if you can tag along with somebody and just see how they move around and I think, and Sam touched on it in volume of photos. A lot of times, people just stand there, and they've got the camera at eye level, and they snap all their photos. And it's like, move, move around, get on the ground, go from this side, go from that side, shoot up, shoot down, you know. And I think the constant movement and um, seeing how people move, you can learn um, you can learn a lot about composition and and about what you're trying to you're you're doing and then by moving around usually you're shooting into light or out of the light and you're always adjusting you know iso and and shutter speed and and checking spot meter stuff that i think that forces you to um you know learn a lot of your controls on your camera really fast but one of the things i think a lot of listeners might want to know sam is um dive into your gear like what what body are you running? What lenses do you take for a particular hunt like you're on right now?
2: Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um, so I just got the, uh, the the Canon 5D Mark IV. I've been shooting a uh, the Mark III for, uh, I guess, in you know, 2000. And like, I, remember, three, three yeah, I don't remember, three or three and a half years from whatever. Yeah, for a long time. I think I put, you know, 100. Hundred twenty thousand shots through the through the camera from like that, and uh, um, I yeah, so shoot Mark three Mark now, and the reason I upgraded to that is it, it performs um, better in low light conditions, so I can push that ISO a little bit more, still have you know very clear imagery in low light. You know, obviously you do a lot of low light, um, you know, whether it be you know deer running or outcoming or whatever. Um, so that that has helped a lot, and then. I, uh, I get I get the question a lot about like what what should I get with lenses? should I get it. And uh, um, the majority of the time, I will carry three lenses. So on a hot like like I'm on right now, I'll carry a a super wide angle. So I, I have a 14 millimeter um, broken on. It's a full manual lens. It was only three hundred dollars, but it takes an excellent image and um, it's a really cool you know perspective. it's shooting in that wide angle. And then lens I use the majority of the time is going to be at like you know, a workhorse lens. So I have a, a 24 to 105 um, L series lens, which is, uh, comes with the kit. It's by Canon, and uh, but it's an L series lens, and it's in a four. Uh, but it's that range from 24 to 105. It's it's fairly wide. Um, you don't start to get it, you know, degrading qualities on the side of the lens at 24 millimeters, and then you can get you can reach out a little ways. Uh, and then I carry a 100 to 400 millimeter uh, L series from Canon, just those long. So, on um, sell swap out the 100 to 400 for that for a 70 to 200 um, because it is a uh, I have a lower f stop on that 70 to 200 and it gives me a little bit more light and uh, shooting in low light stuff. But but yeah, the, I, I tell people they can usually get away with three lenses. That's a wide angle at 24 to 105 or something similar. And that one, one telephoto. And with those three, you can shoot, you know, 95% of the shots that I shoot uh, on a daily basis. So,
1: so, so when you're, while you're filming, are you also capturing audio at the same time or, or when you're out on a hunt, like you're out on now, do you have someone that's capturing auto audio, you know, in isolation or how does that usually work on these types of hunts? hmm mm-hmm. Right. nice yeah it's uh
3: right uh right now i've got a 1635 l um a 50 millimeter and uh 7200 l and my 50 is just a it's a sigma 1 4 that kind of like what sam was saying with that Rokinon. on i picked mine up for 300 bucks something like that um and it does. It, it actually does a really, really good job, and, and I'm running the exact same mic, that little micro, the uh, little ball um, deal on top of the DSLR. And uh, but, you know, when we were out there in Montana, uh, I got to look over Matt Zinger's shoulder and check out some of the Sony's, and I did just recently uh, pick up a Sony A6500 so um that's
2: a cool that's a very cool camera
3: it's neat it's really neat um i've got the metabones adapter so i can just use all my canon l glass and stuff on it uh no need to to switch that up or add that that expense but um it does have the um the small crop sensor so you know when i do put the 70 to 200 on there it's actually you know uh, one, you know, some, somewhere around one hundred ten to three hundred or something like that. So that might come in handy here in about a week when I'm out there chasing antelope. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah my uh, my my photography skills aren't that uh, aren't that uh, 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 I guess uh, pronounced. Some of that's yeah. <laughs> <the>, uh, <laughs> I, I got I got a camera that I like. I haven't got to capture much with it yet at this point, but we'll keep trying. That's my. <laughs>
2: You know, and, and you know, if if your listeners are predominantly World Club guys, you know, a lot of times the DSLR if you're trying to film in you know, the DSLR route is not or mirrorless is not really the route to go. You know, it's better to get a a true video camera, um so you're not constantly switching lenses and, and doing that kind of thing. It's just I do a lot more photography than I do film work and so it's uh, it's you know, I need to have D S L R and all the different lenses, but when I was working for a swipe till I ran a Canon X and in for the entire time. And that did just fine. So,
1: right. Yeah. I used, you know, doing, yeah. the, doing the DIY solo, solo filmer, it's, I use just like a little, you know, handy cam is usually what I have in the, in the tree with me with a, some type of point of view camera. Yep. Um, and that usually does the yep. trick for me. And then I do have a DSLR that I'll usually take some photos afterwards, or maybe I'll, have it in the tree with me and just capture B roll along the way of, you know, leaves blowing or, you know, whatever the case might be, just to kind of have something to kind of help jog things along. Editing is where I tend to fall down as well. It's like the, the the piecing of the story together is an art form that um, I have a background in audio editing and, you know, recording and um, I'm used to using one medium. And then once you kind of throw audio and video together, it becomes a whole different animal. (laughs) And so I'm still, I'm still trying to learn my, learn my way through that. But John, (laughs) you both had mentioned the whole YouTube idea of you know being somewhat of a visual learner you know i mean where you can actually watch how things are being done versus having to read about it or whatever and it really kind of you know uh, shortens your learning curve and the one thing i want to mention because i want to change gears here quickly is that i learned a lot about you and a school bus on youtube um yes about <laughs> about a, a guy who decided to purchase a school bus is doing something really cool uh, <laughs> really cool with it first off i didn't even know that you could purchase school buses uh, i thought um i wasn't quite sure how that fr- how that happened so first off <laughs> let me ask you where, where does one go to procure a school bus before we get into sam's school bus adventures let's take a quick break to hear about our partners at exodus outdoor gear does trail camera theft got you down this season how about trail camera failure or poor battery life Head over to ExodusOutdoorgear.com and use the promo code truth. Save twenty bucks on a trail camera and let Exodus be the cure to your trail camera ailments. Visit ExodusOutdoorgear.com.
2: Cred list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. awesome. And you can buy them you can buy them everywhere. Actually uh I thought I, I I had a deal with a guy. Uh, I was gonna purchase one in Iowa. And, uh, and then, <clears throat> so I'm, uh, I, I do a lot of bartering, um, okay. and, you know, both, you know, for gear, gear, for gear, you know what you know, gear for what you know, whatever it be. And, uh, I had, I had talked to the guy and I was going to trade him. I've got a, you know, the AR 15, 223 I was going to an AR and 1500 bucks for the bus. He had already stripped seats out and everything. It was a flat nose, pretty footer. I mean, like a palace, like giant. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, he was like Yeah, sounds good. I was like, right, I'll be there in two weeks. And he's like, Well, wow, I got another guy that's kind of looking at So I ended up living on that bus. But um, yeah, Craigslist, uh, the one I bought was out in Colorado. And um, my brother found it on Craigslist for, uh, for me, actually, he knew I was looking. And uh, it, um, it had been run by the Fort Lupton School District. And then um, a guy and his d- uncle had bought it to rip the motor out and put it in one of their work trucks. And they didn't end up having to do that because the work truck motor ended up being uh, an easier fix fixer. And so they put it up for sale. And uh, before they bought it, the whole district had completely the motor and transmission. So I don't know how much money they spent on doing that. But so I've got a school bus, 191,000 miles on the body, and like well now 21,000 miles on the... Uh, on the rebuild. So nice. So I want to, yeah. I want
1: to, I want to take a step back for a second. So you, so you get this bus on yeah. Craigslist that was probably right next to like the Elvis yep. toast that has an outline of Elvis burn into it. I'm imagining, right. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen this. <laughs> um, I, I want to, I want to talk about kind of like the origin of this, this project. Cause it's, it's super cool. Like I first, John first kind of explained it to me what, what you were doing. And I, and I watched the videos that you had on, on YouTube of you pulling this bus together and stuff like that. and, I just think it's a yep. super cool concept, number one, and I think it's super cool that someone's someone's doing this. So I watched the YouTube videos. You started making the modifications to the bus. So I have a sense of you know, your commitment to like the, the public lands and what your initiative is. But for the folks out there listening that maybe haven't seen it, you know, haven't heard what you're doing, can you give us a sense of what your motivation is for this project, this bus and like I guess kind of what it means?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the uh uh like purchasing a bus was not Idea, but the whole concept behind what I want to do with the bus um, uh, kind of came together last fall and um, decided to buy the bus and then team up with. Uh, originally, I was just going to team up with Battery Hunters and Anglers uh, to help share the story, um, but then I got in touch with Outdoor Life and they're actually share the entire thing um, and what I'm up to. But I, yeah, so bought the bus um, and decided to turn it into my rolling hunting shack. And, uh, but the whole thing is based around doing a public land for the next year and traveling around and, and hunting, fishing, camping, you know, doing all of the things that we recreation things on public land and talking about all of the public transfer, um, legislation that's, you know, um, trying to be passed. Like, you know, right now I haven't, haven't had a chance without service. I don't have a chance to read the review that Ryan, I think he just talked about national monuments. Um, but you know, for people that don't know what's going on, um, there's a there's been a push to um, transfer federally managed public lands to the states. And at first glance, that seems like a really good idea because the states you know are able to act faster and manage land. But the states you know, you know very shortly, the states can't afford to manage that much land. And in history, when states have been given land, um, a lot of it gets sold off private entities and so we would move access to you know big chunks of, of public land um, which decreases the access for hunting which decreases hunter numbers you know and just you know snowballs down the line so i yeah i decided to you know spend a year of my life in a bus and travel around you know shooting video and photography on public lands and, and uh you know just kind of showing off what these particular lands have to offer and uh, with any luck, I can, you know, help raise awareness and have people you know, join our organizations like Backcountry Honors and Anglers or QBMA or Rocking Mountain Elk Foundation or anything like that to help fund the access for, um, you know, outdoor recreation across the country.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I, what you're doing is, is awesome. Um, you know, I, I will just say thank you from, from me personally that, you know, someone is that you're taking the charge and kind of, um, you know, doing something that's cause related, giving up your time to do it, um, you know, your, your dollars to do it and um, you know, making people aware of it. I think it's, I think it's interesting, you know, that I've I've read a couple of different things and I, I don't claim to be as, as up on some of these topics as, as I, as I probably should be. Um, but one of the things I think that kind of discourages me the most is Um, How the issue gets politicized to a degree where you're either on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle and then you should be aligned with this, you know, ideal of what public lands are mean and what should what should happen to them, you know, and that to me is a dangerous place to be uh, when you start making decisions about things that have such a vast impact beyond just today, um, I just was listening to yeah. a podcast with Shane Mahoney, and if for anyone who doesn't know who Shane Mahoney is and you care any anything about wildlife, public lands, wild creatures, you know, clean air, clean water, you know, you should absolutely listen to the, what that guy has to say. He's probably one of the smartest people I've ever listened to. Um, yeah. You know. Um, Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and he talks about it a little bit about you know the the, the socio like economic impact of of these things as well. Because I mean, I read at one point a couple weeks ago when they were talking about I forget what piece of land it was or exactly what. Issue It was particularly, but the federal government was making a claim essentially that the reason they needed to sell these offer transfer these lands is because that they were basically going into the, that there was no revenue being generated by these, by these lands. And that the way that the federal government looks at revenue from a public land perspective, and maybe, you know, this, so keep me honest here. What I gathered from it was they only look at revenue from public lands that are, is generated by natural resources, So they don't look at it as what is the effect of of losing the land from a... Um, You know, whether it's selling, uh, you know, uh, know, hunting tags to hunters, whether it's, you know, recreational tourism coming through to to enjoy the public lands or hiking, kayaking, you know, non-consumptive, I guess, uh, outdoor lovers. Yep. Um, They only look at it from a natural resource. Like, so the logging, the mineral in the ground, the ore, um, the gas, the oil, whatever the case might be. And then they look at it and say that this is not producing anything toward our bottom line from a federal perspective. So let's give this to the lands. And they'll do exactly what you just said the states will do i read a statistic somewhere. I don't remember the exact number, but it basically was like Western States in general. I think they actually mentioned Montana specifically. If they had to fund what it costs to fight wildfire in a Western, like if the state itself yeah. had to do it, it would bankrupt the state just to do that one aspect oh, yeah. of managing of that management of that public land. So yep. I just yep. urge those who are listening to like, don't buy the bill of goods that someone's trying to sell you at face value. Um, Cause everyone always has an angle. Yeah. Um, so do your due diligence and try to understand what the ramifications are, what they actually will be. Um, and then, you know, if you still choose that, you think that, you know, selling them off is the right thing to do, then if you, if you've got, if you've learned up, you know, got edumacated on it, um, then I can kind of live with, (laughs) you know, you having an opinion, um, but making it a political issue where you're just following the lead of someone blindly. I have a, I have a large issue with and um and it disappoints me i don't know i kind of went on a little bit of a soapbox rant there i'm sorry i'd like to you know hear you chime in as well
2: no, no, no that's okay it's, a, it's an easy topic to up about um, because there is there is so much information that isn't in the light and it's you know it's something that people need to go out and, and read about you know, some organizations that are trying to fight you know to keep public lands in public hands so yeah. And that's really what it comes down to—is is, is what we're all rallying against and, and trying to make sure that you know, like children. But some when I have children, I would like them to be able to come up to Montana and you know go hunt. Uh, How you know, ten million acres of public access land that you could just go work out and start hunting. Um, you know, I want you know generations to come to be able to do those things. And that's probably slightly biased because I've spent almost my entire life in the outdoors and it it means so much to me and i think it would be hard to see you know our side of this type of thing if you live in it every day um and so you know some of the land could seem like it's just sitting out there for no reason but that's you know hardly the truth at all
1: yeah and the other part too that i think sometimes gets me is that you know, it's uh, especially whenever it becomes a politicized issue. Is that you know this is something that is I don't want to say 100 percent uniquely American, but I think I think we could all pro- with like pretty good certainty say that it's uniquely North American <laughs> um, public lands. You know, at least from a, um, a U.S. And, and kind of Canada perspective, um, that you know it, we're one of the few places, if not maybe the only place, where that its citizens owns as much of the country as, as we do. Um, and I have a fundamental problem with someone telling me that they're going to, to sell it out from under me, you know, as a, as an owner. Um, yeah. and I think if yeah, people took exactly. that perspective, if they, if someone came to you and said, I'm going to take your house, even though you own it, and I'm not going to let you really have a say in it. And I'm going to try to backdoor you and then tell you tomorrow that you got a week to get out. Like, how would you feel right. about that? You know what I mean? Because that's how connected yeah. you should feel to the feel to, to these things. You know, it's, um, yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean I could go
2: Yeah and I Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say I, I reiterated it several times, you know, on, on you know, talking to different people. Like and that's that's the a very good point you just made is that the land it might you know it might be called state land or called federal land, but we all own it. Mm-hmm. You know, the citizens of the United States own the land. So it's uh it's important to remember that and like you know, it's it's our stay in what happens. The you know the, the resources that we have, yeah, and there's
1: there's countries out there that would that would just do almost anything they could do to have the, you know, and I'll use Shane Mahoney's words, the, the type of institutions that we have and the type of public lands that we have and the in the type of you know wildlife that we have, and it's because that you know what was it 1880 I forget 86 or 87 or something like that whenever uh, Roosevelt started the whole conservation movement, and I'm probably getting my years wrong, but you know, yep. it's it places like, uh, you know, for example, like Africa, you know what I mean? It's like they would love to have the management of resources, the ability to manage the resources the way we are capable of doing it. And we want to partially throw it away. You know what I mean? And that's the part that just, yeah, without a fight even, you know what I mean? And that's the part where yeah. it's like there's people like Shane, like a Shane Mahoney who's working around the world to try to build a model that looks like ours. and we're And we're going, how could we tear this apart?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think, uh, you know, for people listening out there, I think, you know, three of us on our podcast, you know, we need to make sure that we clarify that we have nothing against private land and private land hunting. Absolutely. And at least I don't. I mean, you know, like, I mean, it's a necessity to have, you know, both public land and private land. There's, you know, there's like out the west, there's giant chunks of private land that is a, you know, becomes a sanctuary, you know, even if they allow some hunting, it's it becomes a sort of a sanctuary for the animals, you know, during parts of the season. And, you know, they're able to go and, and reproduce. And then because the populations grow and, and spread, and it's still there, and then it's better for everybody. Um, so I think, you know, we're definitely out here preaching the public lands and making sure, you know, trying to do everything that we can to keep the public lands in public hands. But I think it's, it's, it's good to remind people that it's not like we're against people that hunt private lands. Yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm certainly the person that's on private land. I will continue to hunt private land, but majority of what I do just happens to be on public, and it would, be, you know, for me, it would be hard to that, you know, start to be
1: lost. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. It's like I definitely, you know, growing up in PA, um, we always had family land. And that's how I grew up hunting was on families, you know, private land. So I absolutely echo what you said. It's yep. not that the private private land is bad. There's a lot of uh, yeah. great opportunities, great ways to learn learn to hunt. You know, for me, it's you know, my daughter's coming of the age where she's starting to go out to the timber with me and wants to hunt. And we do some squirrel hunting, some turkey hunting, and stuff like that. And it's nice to have private land so I can take her in a much more controlled environment to teach her. Um, to where I know yep. Yep. who's around and I know that, you know, where other people are stationed. So we know that we're safe and, you know, where people are hunting. So I know that we're safe and stuff like that. And it's a nice controlled environment to let her kind of get her feet wet with it. You know what I mean? And so, um, and I still hunt, you know, our family farm to this day and, and, and enjoy it, but you bring up something interesting when you bring that up, because, you know, my feeling is is that on the East Coast, the public lands issued are talked about much, much less than in Western states. So like all my hunting buddies and stuff like yeah. that here on the East Coast, we we will talk about hunting public land. But the whole notion or the yep. idea of public lands possibly being transferred and what type of impact we would feel or how concerned we are with it really doesn't ever come up and it seems like everyone views this more as an as a western problem predominantly what would you say to the white tail hunter or the turkey hunter in pennsylvania or michigan you know why should he or she care about the issue if it's not something that they view as um that's directly affecting them per se in their in their state that they hunt in
2: yeah um well i mean if uh To the to the guy that he said, you know, have any ambition to, you know, like, ever, you know, ever come west and hunt. You know, I mean, I would say, yes, it it, it is a bigger issue in the west because there is so much more, you know, publicly held land out here. But, you know, the guys that are ever thinking about coming out and doing the hunt out in the west, it would impact them, you know, just because, you know, like that, that big aspirational elk hunt or the big aspirational mule hunt or the moose hunt or the, you know, whatever it might be. Now, if that land goes to the wayside, like that's that's not even an option. It's not even a thing that you, you know, can fantasize about or think about. Like, you know, one day I really want to go out west and do this hunt. It would just be like with lack kind of the access, it would be a harder thing for those people to just hop in the truck and go out and do. Yeah. Um, not, that it's impossible, you know, knocking on doors that kind of thing. But it it does it does make it harder and, and and access to hunting I think is one of the bigger barriers for new hunters yeah um, I mean. and then on the on yeah and then on the other the other side of it is you know the economic impact as far as like the hunting industry goes and wildlife management and, and that kind of thing i mean the the number of of licenses that are sold and you know to to be able to go hunt public lands i mean all of those dollars go back to funding you know management and wildlife management and lands management. And, you know, doing all of these things that keep populations alive, and that includes, you know that would include white tails uh, back out east on the on the chunks of, of the public land that exists. And then, uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know how many people are, are hunting the public land bases out east. I mean, I haven't spent a whole whole lot of time east of Mississippi, but I would imagine that um, you know, say tomorrow, like all of the public land places are closed. Uh, I think there's you know, would end up being a lot more competition for those, you know, farms and and places that, you know, people private land hunt, hunt. I feel like there would be a lot more competition from the people that used to hunt public land, but now have to go knock on doors that, you know, you might be knocking on or, you know, somebody, your buddies might be knocking on.
1: Right. I think, so. I I was just going to say for me, I think the one thing that you mentioned where, you know, like the hunt that I'm going to do here in two weeks wouldn't be possible without public land. You know, it's like the knocking on doors. I know, you know, you mentioned that's a possibility, but for me, Living where I live in Pennsylvania, it's like me going out and making a special trip to a flight to Montana because you know, I can't drive it just for like a you know quick turnaround to do to go knock on some doors. Yeah, you can't
2: run after a weekend,
1: right? <laughs> you know what I mean. It makes it you know nearly yeah. impossible to do that, and so then your only other options is now you're and these these all have a place in in the hunting in the hunting ecosystem, you know. But for me, you know, I'm not really a guy who wants to or is willing to shell out you know, a certain amount of money to go with an outfitter, you know what I mean? And that's something that I just uh, right. doesn't interest me a lot. Um, you know, but for yep. me, the public land allows me to go do the hunt for, look, you know, it's, I bought the triple, the, the combo tag, the the elk, mule deer and whitetail tag. Mm-hmm. It was a thousand dollars. And then me and my yep. two buddies to drive out to Montana, we'll all throw 500 bucks in the kitty and that'll give us our gas yep. and our food and stuff for two weeks. And our buddy out there has the, the tents already. So it's like we're, the three of us are basically going to go do that hunt for two weeks for fifteen hundred bucks, like I don't know where right. else or how else you could do a hunt like that on that type of budget and have that type of experience. Like, never mind the hunt, right? Take the take the harvesting of an animal out of the equation. Like, where could you have that type of experience for for that type of value? You know what I mean? It's exactly, um, yep. You know, and I think it's almost it's
2: almost possible.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and then I, I like yeah. the fact that you mentioned the the economic impact component of it too, because you know if you think about it and you. You lose those licenses, right? And there's an excise tax. Well, those licenses go to fund the right A portion of it goes to fund, as you mentioned, like the management of those lands and the conservation of the animals and stuff like that. But then if you look at the trickle down effect, then that also means now you're selling less gear because there's fewer hunters, right? Which now means you have yeah. less excise yep. tax on every piece of hunting gear that's purchased now goes away by that. By that multiplier, right? Whatever that multiplier is. Yep. And then you also now have reduced hunters because people can't, don't have as much access. So you have fewer hunters in the woods. So our voice is now reduced. So whenever people talk about wanting to take away our our privilege to hunt, we're in a, in a, in a really, really scary place where we no longer have the numbers to support it because they've effectively reduced our hunting numbers by taking away part of the land that we use to introduce new hunters to hunting. So, you know, it's, it's a it's a trickle down effect that's very scary. And that's the reason why I think people in the East should be concerned. It's not so much about the land in the East per se. It's that you know, yep. we often forget that this is a privilege that we have that the that the majority allow us to continue to do. And the numbers are dwindling as hunters stand as it is as it is today. And if we do if we continue to do things that allow us allow others to reduce our numbers further, we just make it a lot harder for us to have a voice or a say whenever it comes to political issues, where we need numbers and need voices and we need people to, to sign petitions and send emails to their congressmen and, and, and make phone calls. And now you've removed that element of the of the process, um, and we've done it to ourselves to a degree.
2: Yep. Yep. Sorry, I got on my, my, yeah, my political I, I, rant there a little bit. <laughs> no, no, that's that's, that's, that's that's absolutely, you know, great point. You know, this, we don't have a very. Little, not a very big percentage of the country in general that hunt. Yeah, and uh, you know once that voice starts getting smaller and smaller, you know we have we have way less say uh, in having decisions made in our favor. So that's so, um, you know like uh, people, you know like you said, you know you you spend a thousand dollars on you know a deer a deer tag uh, an elk tag or. or what is it two deer? No, it's just one of each, one of either. Right. You right. Get two can two either, deer. I can, and an elk an, tag,
1: right? Right. I can either take an elk or a muley. Yep. And I can also take a white yeah. tail. So I can take two of two in total.
2: Right. Yep. Exactly. So, um, you know, and a lot of people will scoff at, you know, spending that much money on tags. I, um, I've had several conversations, but I never feel bad about spending a ton of money on hunting tags because I know that money is going to go, you know, both back to, you know, the study of the animal that I'm hunting for that egg, you know, it's also going to go help pay for a person's job, you know, the biologist or the game ward or the, you know, whoever it might be that's, uh, you know, protecting, you know, and watching over that land of that herd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to go, you know, it's going to go do all of these great things. I mean, just purchasing a hunting pig is an act of conservation in itself. Right. So, I mean, I'd, I'd almost like to start an initiative to have people like, Oh, well, you're not going to hunt this year? i will buy a federal waterfowl. You know, if it's $25, all of that money goes towards waterfowl research. You know, and things like that, you know, like spend $25, help protect this way of life. Yeah, It's, uh, you know, it's, I never feel bad about spending a bunch of money on hunting tag because I know all of that goes towards protecting exactly what I'm doing that, you know, right now
1: right exactly and like look it's yep. I've spent I've spent more on worse you know what I mean it's like <laughs> oh yeah. No,
2: exactly yeah, yeah I've spent a lot on dumber things.
1: yeah I look, I look at I look at my youth and I'm like man look at there were some bad decisions back then that, that cost me probably a thousand dollars but the, yep. moving on to moving on to happier conversations I'll get out of my my soapbox mode here because I'm sure people will probably <laughs> tired of hearing me scream about about these things but um, I want to ask both of us or the three of us not the both of us. I want to ask the three of us uh, this question. And and Sam, we'll start with you. But since you have a school bus, school buses are always places for interesting things to happen, right? So I want to hear what is each of our best and worst or funniest school bus memory. Sam, you go first. Best, worst, or or funniest school bus memory?
2: Oh, uh, I'll probably say the worst memory I've ever had on a school bus was uh, the summer camp I I can almost smell it. Um, (laughs) The summer camp, you know, it's just hot, and you're on the bus. I think a kid in the back, (laughs) a kid in the back threw up in the aisle. Oh man! And yeah, and yeah, and it was, and it was. um, (laughs) So then, you know, obviously the bus driver hears the sound. Well, then uh, it was it was a female counselor that was driving. She slams on the not slams the brakes, hits the brakes pretty hard, and so. uh, just goes run it down the aisle, uh-huh. just almost all the way to the front of the bus, and so so now you've got an embarrassed kid and an aisle full of puke and just a bunch of kids that are like you know under their nose and trying not to puke. It was actually <laughs> awful. Yeah. Oh man. So that was a, my uh, worst worst experience on a bus. Nice. So that's a, that's a
1: it's uh, a pretty yeah. good one. John, uh, what, yeah. what 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 do, you, what do you got for your bus experience?
3: Uh, okay. (laughs) So my worst experience, uh, growing up, um, initially in like central Kentucky, you know, mom's a Southern cook and every morning you wake up and it was like eggs and bacon and biscuits and gravy. And, you know, you had all the fixings, you know, and normally I would try to eat breakfast, and take care of business before I got on the school bus. Now, since I live so far out in the country, I had to get on the school bus like at six in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, had overslept a little bit and crammed my food in and ran up the driveway, got on the school bus and we get about halfway to school and it hits me. Like I got to drop a deuce (laughs) (laughs) and it's going to (laughs) happen now. Like there's no waiting. There's no, you know, like I'm going to think of something else and so I one of the stops. I went up to the bus driver and her name was Mary bus number one Oh six. I said, Mary, like I, I gotta go, I gotta go number two, like really, really bad. So fortunately we're out in the country and I had to get off the school bus and, you know, go behind a tree. But, um, that was my worst experience. Um, best experience was, uh, also being on the school bus at six in the morning, it's still dark. And there was a cute girl that I got to sit next to and, I think that's when I discovered female anatomy. Yes. That
2: was my the best, best experience. experience. <laughs> I'm,
3: pretty, I'm
1: pretty sure we just lost our clean rating on iTunes right there. That was it. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> no longer. family <laughs> you know,
1: It's okay. Man, that's awesome. I, uh, I'm trying to think my worst was, um, there was two worsts. One was I got handcuffed to a seat while I fell asleep. This was in high school. A buddy of mine, we I was on the wrestling team with. I don't know why he had to say. Was that a school on.
3: bus or is that like an S and M bus party bus you were on? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> man, this, we just went to the bad place all of a sudden. <laughs> um, no, it was. I, I passed out on the bus. Like, and was riding home, and my buddy thought it would be funny to like uh, to handcuff me to the seat. And I was one of the last stops, if not the last stop, depending on if like there were two people after me that got off the bus. And uh, I lived out way out in the country too, but a lot of times uh, like their parents are picking up. So I think they work for the school district or something like that. So a lot of times they didn't ride the bus. So he, he handcuffed me to the seat and then got off the bus at his stop, but forgot to unlock my handcuffs. So I was locked to the, to the bus and had to like ride around and then find some dude to cut my handcuffs off. So that was one of the worst. <laughs> yeah. Which was, which was pretty good. Yeah. I, I wasn't a big fan of his and wrestling practice the, that week. Um, and then the other one, which was bad that I, I was scared to death. So my, my parents split up my dad got remarried and my, my stepmom was super cool. And, uh, she had this, uh, younger brother and he was, you know, I don't know, he'd maybe be eight years older than me. he passed away whenever I was a kid, but he was a full on like rocker, big time hunter, big rocker. And this was like, I don't even know, probably like 1988, 89, 88 probably. And he had an ACDC tape back in black I think it was and I had just kind of like started discovering rock and roll like so my my one cousin was like all into you know whatever it was Metallica Motley Crue and stuff like that and so I was getting all into rock and roll and I heard him playing ACDC the one day and I was like man that sounds really cool and he's like you want to borrow it and I was like sure because the bus driver on every Thursday would let you let one person bring a tape in and, they, and she would play the tape in the morning and on the way home for the ride and Like how much, like you couldn't be much cooler on the bus unless your tape was being played and it was, and it was badass. So I get on the bus that morning. I'm like, you know, whatever, I forget what her name was. I was like, Hey, I got a tape. Will you play it? And she's like, sure. What is it? And I was like, it's ACDC. She's like, sure. So she puts it on and it's like into the first track, about 30 seconds. I'm rocking out and I'm feeling like I'm the man, right? I just, I I threw ACDC on. I'm in like fifth grade, I think. And I'm rocking ACDC. And all of a sudden the tape machine starts making this funny noise and absolutely ate the tape, like just destroyed it. And I was scared to death because her, uh, my, my step uncle, I guess, Mike was just like this big hulking, like beast of a man, like fully bearded, like just gnarly. Like when you think of like hardcore, like late eighties, backcountry of Pennsylvania Hunter, you know, like. Like what we would, I would call like growing up, like I grew up kind of a hillbilly, you know what I mean? And that was him, you know what I mean? He was, wasn't, didn't say a he, lot of words. He looked
2: like, he looked like one of the Raiders linemen from the eighties.
1: Yeah, totally. From the yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> he looked
1: like a Raiders lineman and he didn't say a whole lot, a few words and it was always kind of gruff, you know what I mean? So I was scared to death of him and ate the tape. And I remember I just like, was like, Oh my God, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. So I hid it from him. Like he kept asking me for his tape back and I just kept telling him like, Oh man, I'm still listening to it. And so he, I eventually, I, I gave it back to him and I thought he was going to kill me and he was cool with it. But that was one of the worst days on the bus too. Was his DC and DC I went from being the man to like, like deucing myself like John in, in like 30 seconds. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh man! What's that John?
3: I said, No, it's it's a it's a bad situation, man. You gotta poop on the bus, you get your, your tape eaten and, and then I can just imagine like as soon as the bus driver hits the brakes and then the vomit goes like sloshing forward. That's awful. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, that
1: ain't no good. I think Yeah. I think Sam, I think you won worse worse story. We'll 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 send something we'll send some type of prize out to you for that. That's you shouldn't have to- uh,
2: yeah. I don't know if I want a prize. Did I win or did I lose?
3: Like, that's really the
2: real question. What's that? <laughs> did, did I win?
1: Or did I lose? Oh, well, I mean, at the the uh, <laughs> winning or losing is the, is in the eye of the beholder of the gift or of the prize. I guess that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
3: right.
1: <laughs> so let's have a no let's have a no vomit policy and no tape eating policy and no deuce policy on this bus while you're while you're touring around the public land. Sound fair?
2: Yeah. 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 Nice. I do have a I do have a little bathroom in in the bus with a porn toilet. And, uh, I think I'm going to burn into the pine, like unless it's below 20 degrees, no pooping on the bus.
3: Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. solid, It's
1: so, yeah. solid policy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I want to ask you one more thing, man. And we've kept you here about an hour and I want to be sensitive of your time. Cause I know you guys are, are, you know, on a, on a hunting trip and are in camp, you know, this, uh, this week and stuff, but, uh. You know, when this whole bus voyage is kind of all said and done and, and wrapped up, what, what do you hope the outcome is? Like, what's what's your idea of success for this?
2: Well, uh, I mean, really the idea is for success. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if you have seen the uh, shirt company that I started kind of in conjunction with the bus project.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, yeah, so th- what I'd love to do, you know, I'd start a company, public entity, and uh, would love to raise a bunch of money. You know, for public land access and to help fight to keep public lands public. Um, you know, and so obviously that would be you know, a huge success if I can hand DHA, you know, a map to check, you know, at the end, you know, or at the end of the year and be like, here you go, you know, keep fighting for you know, what we're fighting for. You know, that would be a big success. And then just, um, I think I'm really going to try to toe that line. You know, we've, we're we obviously all three, you know, very into the hunting industry, but I'm really going to try to toe that line you know, moving on from hunting season, you know, with the, the general, you know, recreator who, you know, is going to go spend time on national forest, go camp and go set a tent or is going to go hiking somewhere and go fish, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it may be. I really want to tap that line between the hunting world and the outdoor world because they have way bigger numbers than we do. Mm-hmm. And if we can all fight this thing together, you know, not just hunters rallying together, but all people who enjoy these events, if we can all fight together, you know, and have, if I can create a little bit more of a voice to help keep all of this, you know, the way it is, or, you know, even better than it is currently, um, that would be success.
1: That's awesome, man. And I, I, like I said before, man, I appreciate the fact that there's someone out there they're doing it. So kudos to you and, you know, from, I can probably safely say from all of us hunters. And I think even from all those non-consumptive users, you know, uh, a big thank you for, for taking this on, um, you know it's it's a an admirable admirable thing that you're doing. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how everything kind of shakes out and, and follow along with you. But with that being said, um, where can folks kind of follow along your journey and learn more about Sam Soholt, the bus, the big the big non puke bus? And, uh, and, and public lands? <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> so yeah, so right now, um, the place for people to find everything is just Instagram. So my my handle is just at Sam Soholt. Uh, last name is S O H O L T. Um, and then from there, um, I'll push in. I'll i I'll, I'll, I'll be able to give everybody a link to uh, whatever thing starts living on the open country section of Outdoor Life's website. So, um, gonna be putting together photo essay content, video content, um, and then um, yeah, and then I'll be you know doing blog posts on there and stuff too about the bus journey and and everything. So I'm just trying to try to push it out through several different avenues to make sure you know people can follow along with whatever whatever medium they want to be reading or watching.
1: Nice. Um, before we wrap it up, though, uh, John, do you have anything you want to want to add in?
3: Yeah, I wanted to add. So um, Sam just released a new T-shirt today. Uh, you know, we talk about the Western hunters versus, you know, whitetail or maybe Eastern hunters and stuff like that. But Sam just released a shirt today, um, silhouette of a whitetail deer, and it's got the word uh, November. Um shadowed out or or hole punched out however you want to refer that but um it is a sick sick shirt it's super cool i'm gonna pick one up for myself and encourage anybody who maybe you're not a western hunter and maybe you haven't gone out west to hunt and maybe that public land thing um you know isn't something that you're totally immersed in but you can definitely support by picking up this Whitetail november
2: shirt it's super cool yeah, that's a, that's. A thought, good. I thought you guys might like that one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, I, you know, growing up, stuff. I had, it, but it to the white hunter, so right. Um, yeah, right. well, wh- but
0: yeah,
2: like you know, if if people don't know, five dollars from every shirt goes to um, a country hunters and anglers to help fight to keep public lands public.
1: Nice. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I do appreciate yeah. you, uh, you joining the show and, uh, I definitely want to check in with you again, man, as you're, as you're, uh, as you're on your journey, but, uh, thanks for your time and, uh, good luck to you and, uh, Jason chasing those Rams.
2: Yeah. Yeah. really, th- you yeah, know, really appreciate you having me on the show and uh look forward to doing it again.
1: All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I want to thank Sam for joining us. Be sure to head over to Sam's Facebook and Instagram pages and give him a follow to keep up with his public land bus adventures. Also, be sure to stop by the publiclandtees.com and pick up a shirt to support public lands. $5 for every shirt sold goes to uh, towards supporting public lands. I'll place all the links for those uh, social properties and the website in the blog post show notes. Most importantly, I want to take a moment to thank all of you for tuning in and giving us part of your day. And uh, also, for those of us about to rock, uh, good luck here in the next few days if you're opening on the 30th. If you're already out in the timber, I hope that the uh, stud you've been watching all summer passes by your tree stand. Uh, Also, if you wouldn't mind, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star iTunes rating. That would be awesome. We'd be very much appreciative of that. And be sure to hit the iTunes subscribe button while you're there so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. If you'd like to follow along with Truth From The Stand and all of our Whitetail antics, you can do so on the Truth From The Stand Instagram page and Facebook pages. And if you'd like to get involved in the show and have John and I or a guest answer your questions, or if you'd just like to recommend a topic for discussion, email me your suggestions at truthfromthestand@gmail.com, gmail.com, or you can click the email button on our Instagram account and leave us a message. And finally, I need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible whitetail institute of north america exodus outdoor gear and lone wolf portable tree stands and until next time we'll see y'all